0: there we have a, a really great topic line we have a lot of things to talk about today i saw a lot of things this week that i definitely want to talk about this week because yeah it's a lot you going on in the athletic world know, everybody is entitled to their opinion right everybody is entitled to their opinion mm-hmm. however it does not mean your opinion should be voiced you know and we're going to talk about that in a second um so yeah so today's topic is all about distress tolerance right? We know distress is a negative form of stress, and in extreme cases, can cause anxiety and apprehension towards, you know, themselves or the sport they're playing. And depending on upon the athlete's level of ability, level of competition, or personal stress, uh, or I mean, sorry, or personality, stress can have a big impact on their performance. So we're going to be talking about how stress can, you know, hinder an athlete from, you know, performing at their best ability, and why you should not stress. You know, obviously, easier said than done. But we're going to talk about why you should not stress. And also for our athletes, you know, how having a healthy level of anxiety is cool. But when mm-hmm. anxiety becomes excessive, how that distress can really rob you of your true performance. So we're going to get into mm-hmm. all those good things in a few. Um, so if you don't mind, um chivalry's not dead, ladies and gentlemen. But I, I wanted to uh, probe our mental health uh, tip of the week this week with something that I saw on Instagram and I found it to be really interesting. And we've kind of, we've kind of touched on this before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I wanted your thoughts on it. I'm trying to get it to pull up real quick. Um, so it was a, a post that this therapist had uh, posted um, on uh, Instagram. And so the, t- the post said "If everyone needs therapy. Then the problems everyone dealing with are systematic, cultural, too big to be confronted alone between two people. It's actually a grave injustice to make individuals responsible for this. And when I saw that, I was like, "Hmm, interesting." So it made me, it made me, you know, think about it for a little bit. And um, <clears throat> so then somebody else said, you know, as someone who's consistently been going to therapy for years and working on myself. Let me tell you that there's only so much individual introspection and healing um, you can do when the structural forces and external events contributing to mental illness continue acting on you. Um, both points, which I do agree with and disagree with. Um, One of the things I've always felt, you know, near and dear to my heart um, since I've been a counselor is that, you know, yes, I think every individual, you know, who is an individual has their individual responsibilities to be the best version of themselves as possible. You know, I don't think that necessarily has to be a written rule, but it's something that should be understood amongst individuals. You know, while you're here for a good time, not a long time, you should try to strive to be the best individual you can be. Mm-hmm. However, we know in the reality of things, there are systems, there are, are injustices, there are any ine- unequal ine- opportunities that are present day in and day out. Unfortunately, a lot of those injustices, unequal ine- opportunities, and, you know, just downright wrong systems are oftentimes solicited to people of color, even more specifically Black people. You Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) when I first started in the field, I was an an intensive at-home counselor. And for those who don't know what that is, basically it is a counselor that works with children and their family um, Mm -hmm. who have been going through, you know, very serious situations. Um, The child is at risk of being removed from the home, so on and so forth um and you know when i first started you know i i was you know very you know gung-ho on it um you know looking forward to the challenge and everything of you know going into this family you know wherever they're living at and trying to you know just give them something that they can hang on to to possibly you know you know look for a better life in other words i was trying to be a hope dealer to these families who saw no hope whatsoever one of the things that I learned quickly and especially I learned quickly within the system of intensive at home counseling is that as much as you can focus on working with the child who is present in a system, within a structure, within a family that is doesn't have the adequate resources, tools, community environment to have a thriving kid. Oftentimes you start to feel like your work goes in vain, you know, in intensive at home counseling. We're only we're only allowed up to 10 hours a week to work with that individual. Mm -hmm. I always tell people there's 168 hours in a week. So in that 10 hours, I'm allowed to up to a week. There's 158 other hours that the family structure, the environmental structure, the systemic oppression is allowed to thwart and diminish all that work I've done within that 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I always saw with kids is like, you know, kids will look at you and be like, well, you're telling me these things. You're telling me I can do this. You're telling me I can be that. But when you walk out my door, none of that exists. You know, so I always, always found issue with that. And even, you know, now that I'm a therapist and things like that, and, you know, my role in you know, helping with individuals within the community is a little bit different. One of the things I always continue to think about and always continue to say is that as much as we have these mental health issues, I'm also a firm believer in that a lot of the people who are having, you know, chronic mental health challenges and issues probably would not have the occurrence or the frequency of these issues if their environment had the adequate resources and, and, you know, sustainability to not have to worry about that. And what do I mean by that? One adequate schools. I'm a firm believer and I don't care who likes it or don't like it. I do not care for the public school education system whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I don't care for whatsoever at all. I feel like the, and I've 13 years of public school. And I mean, if you want to count um, college and grad school, because those are public universities, that's, 20 years then 20 years of public education and yes it's taxpayer dollars so you know technically I am invested into the public school education but it's terrible I'm not gonna say what I really feel about it because it'd probably be bleeped out every other word but it's terrible it's god awful it basically teaches our kids to be followers and employees and not leaders innovators progressive people and you know and leaders and things like that Mm -hmm. so I do agree with it in a sense that, yes, you know, can individual therapy, you know, be effective for the individual? Absolutely. Can group therapy be effective for the group? Absolutely. But if any, if any therapist or clinician is out there thinking that them as the individual therapist or clinician is going to change one person that is going to change an entire system or community, you are you are digging yourself up a wrong hole, and you know barking up a wrong tree as well. I do believe that through individual therapy and individual help, you can help an individual give them a perspective that they might offer to others to help spark a change amongst the group and collective. But I think a lot of times people think that if they go to see an individual therapist, all their problems will go away. A lot of times, and you know, some people might feel differently, but I feel like a lot of people's issues are economic issues that trigger mental health challenges and issues within them. Now, granted, are, do people have hereditary issues, issues that are passed down or, you know, just, um, they were, you know, just happen to be exposed mm-hmm. to or witnessed a, a very unfortunate event? Yes, that does happen. But I do feel like, especially in our black community, you know, and I live around two communities in Petersburg, Virginia and Richmond, Virginia, where they're predominantly black and they're the most underfunded, you know, group out of those communities. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like as much as we as clinicians do help on a mental health level and we can as we should continue to, we should continue to address these mental health challenges and concerns within our individual clients. However, I think also as therapists, as clinicians, we can also be a catalyst and a voice to talk to our local politicians and let them know that, hey, just as much as you all think that we're supposed to be the savior and fix these people's mentality, Not only only does their mentality need to be fixed, but they also need to be offered real opportunities, real resources, real jobs. I just seen an article where it said that the average rent in Manhattan now is $5,200 a month. That is the average. Now, granted, that's not everywhere, but I'm pretty sure every person that lives in Manhattan ain't got money. I'm pretty sure they don't. So we see that as economic issues, as inflation continues to rise, as our as our economy as a whole goes up and down and we don't know what it's going to be like. This also affects the uh, uh, impacts the everyday person, the everyday person who has to go out here and, and make a set income, knowing they're not going to make any more money or prices continue to rise. Now, our son. Now, granted, you know, we, 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 we make ends meet. We're good. We're good to go for the most part. Right. Not rich in any side of the imagination, but we make ends meet. We'd have been searching all up and down Central Virginia just for a a specific set of diapers for our son that no store has. Got to go pay more to order it online and whatnot. But it's like, you know, these things impact everyday people. When you don't have adequate resources for children and whatnot, parents go. (laughs) You think you think uh, the distress of athletes get real bad. Imagine a parent who don't have they can't provide for their kid and the kids looking at them like what you want me to do. So I wanted your opinion on that because you know I found that an interesting topic that they were talking about online. And I and I do agree, yes, as individuals, we do help. I'm not gonna say here and say that you know we don't help because you know we're gonna lose money if we do that, but we do help and but also we also have to recognize that the issues that we're dealing with our clients on are also bigger than us too in that grand scheme of things. Like, you know, these are economic issues that have been passed down for generation after generation, and until we do something as a collective. You know we can it's almost like we're putting a band-aid on mental health as opposed to actually healing the mental health of individuals because a lot of times and you know i've seen clinicians think that oh well just because i can heal a person all the problems go away well if i'm living in the hood and i don't have no resources and i got to go 30 miles outside of my way to just go get a a decent job like no that's not helping me whatsoever you're just putting a band-aid on the inevitable the inevitable at that point so what are your thoughts on that dr Pitts?
1: I think it's both, um, you know, we talk about and I've said before on the show that each area of my work, whether I'm wearing my couple marriage and family therapist hat, I'm wearing my life coaching hat, or my sports mental health empowerment um hat, or you know, the hat of a black woman and a mom and a wife and sister and all of those, all of the different hats that I wear that we do not live in a vacuum we do not live in a bubble the this the things that we encounter as individual human beings are systemic in nature and we have to be mindful of how these ecosystems that that influence how we think feel function and navigate life are informing how we're showing up first and foremost in our relationship with ourselves And then in our relationship with others and and ultimately how we navigate this thing called life. I do think, though, that there is a tremendous, tremendous um, benefit of individual responsibility within the context of the things that go on in the system. And the reason why I say that is because we do know that one person can make a difference. And I agree with you, Ronnie. It's not about one person being the savior here in the natural. It's about the each, each one reach one mentality, which is systemic. That is a mm-hmm. systemic approach to problem solving. Um, and in that, as a clinician, what I tell my clients is, I'm not a human mechanic, but I can provide you with tools that can be instrumental in helping you to improve you. And as you improve you, you have the ability to be the change that you wish to see in others. One of the things that I do in session is that I show my clients a diagram of of, what we call the CNIP, right? From Mm -hmm. the ecosystemic family system approach to, to treatment. And the the diagram that I show them that's representative of the CNET, the core negative interaction pattern, I use arrows to depict it, but there's spaces in between those arrows Mm -hmm. and those arrows, the spaces between the arrows represent the areas of opportunity for behavior modification. Mm -hmm. And the way that I demonstrate that the one's ability to engage in behavior modification, is, I use a metaphor, I said, in order to, change the flow of that CNIP to make it more positive interaction, it's equivalent to the oil change or the tune-up for your car. You don't have to overhaul your engine. You don't have to rebuild your transmission. But if if you engage in routine maintenance of your vehicle, just like if you engage in routine maintenance for yourself which is clinically what we call self-care right Mm -hmm. and you are instrumental in helping other people to engage in self-care and to do their part to modify behavior and break the core negative interaction patterns that we see ourselves in then over time to your point ronnie we'll see this change in the system which is a perfect example of that in our lifetime is the, the 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 sacrificial lambs if you will of the civil rights movement and the the you know the loss of life and all of those things that transpired that were instrumental in in allowing us to have the freedoms that we have today even though clearly as you stated there are still injustices there's still inequality but we have seen improvement over the system based upon the actions of one individual that was instrumental in causing a movement, a systemic movement that has resulted in some positive outcomes, even though it's not holistically to the magnitude that we would like to see it at this day and time. So I think that it has to be an individual and a collaborative effort That is going to be necessary as we continue to navigate our life's journey to help us to see the healing trajectory that each of us needs to experience to be a better version of ourselves, but to be a better people, to have better homes, to have safer homes, to have safer communities, to have safer, more just experiences for us as a people
0: amen I, and and i I wholeheartedly agree with that and you know so I say that to say you know because I think oftentimes you know i I see it so much now where you know yes, I, I do think if people have an issue that they have a hard time you know processing dealing with, absolutely. can coming to a therapist be uh, uh, um, a beneficial thing for you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. but you know once again I say that to say that therapy can't solve everything. You know, mm-hmm. therapy has its place. Therapy has its lane. But for people to think that therapy is going to solve systemic issues and whatnot, that's not what therapy is for. Therapy is for the individual. Yes. And we have group therapy and things like that and all those other things. But as far as like the systemic issues that we see amongst our communities, therapy, individual therapy is not going to solve that alone. It can be a catalyst. It can be a help. It can be a start. Mm-hmm. But it alone is not going to be the answer. So for people who are, you know, dealing with less, you know, even for suicide, you know, in, inadequate housing can be a reason for suicide. Not mm-hmm. having, you know, proper nutrition and food. We know that most mental health diseases start within the gut. All diseases start within our gut. So if yeah. you have poor gut health, nine times out of ten, you will have poor physical health, will also will lead to poor mental health. So not all the time, just because somebody's depressed or sad or suicidal and things like that, is strictly a mental health issue. So yeah. yes, can mental health therapy help absolutely but that is not the only answer
1: yeah
0: so I just yeah. wanted to share that um because I thought that was important and I know we got about eight minutes left before we get into the topic and I want to also kind of touch on this too real quick if you don't mind yeah. um because boy I've seen so many opinions this week and I just want to say this got a whole bunch of stuff I will say this real quick for those who have never played Football, basketball, baseball, softball, any sport at the collegiate level. Mm -hmm. This whole conversation centered around Deion Sanders this week, leaving Jackson State and going to Colorado. You should have humbly sat this one out. Mm. And I will say this. When I was a 17 year old teenage boy being wooed and and paraded around all these college campuses. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many dreams were sold to me by these coaches. Yeah. As a coach, part of recruiting is selling a dream, selling an idea, mm-hmm. selling a level of hope to this young impressionable teenager that they themselves if they grace your campus with their presence and their effort, their athletic effort, mm-hmm. they them too will reap the benefits of making sure you keep your job. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you this. I've never had one coach in the coll- in the collegiate level that ever looked me in my face and said, if a better job come asking, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. Well, and you now, don't even have
1: to be in sports to take that position. Exactly. Everybody. You know, I say, don't want hey, this promotion. I don't I don't want to have a better way of providing for my family. I I, I like living in substandard housing and having to look paycheck to paycheck and not knowing. Whether or not I'm gonna be able to put food on the table. Now, now, now you keep, keep that promotion. I I don't I don't want it now. I'll piss. I'll pass.
0: Exactly.
1: And I know all money's not good money, but come on, man. And so I will say this about the whole
0: Deion Sanders thing. And I said this in 2020 when it was first announced that he was getting the job. And if you don't believe me, go back and look. I yeah, said this said when it. It, you
1: said it a few times, not just when it first happened. You've touched on that throughout a variety of shows.
0: And The one thing I said was, I don't expect Dion to be there more than five years and five years is being very generous. Yep. You said it. It was very clear. And Dion made this very clear. Yes. I'm coming here to bring awareness and to bring light to the HBCUs.
1: Yeah.
0: However, my main agenda is to show people that I can coach. And not only can I coach I can coach phenomenal talent at a phenomenally high level. it was a stepping stone, and you know what i can't even you know I don't even want to call it a stepping stone in in, in reality, is it a stepping stone yes, but mm-hmm. why he stepped on that stone mm-hmm. and did he not uncover it and provide so much yeah. I've seen a bunch of lists of all the things he's done for Jackson State, and we don't need to go through it. You can just Google it. What did what did uh, Coach Prime do for Jackson State? You'll find an abundance of things he did. And this Mm -hmm. is one of the things I said. The only way Deion Sanders going to Jackson State would be a disservice is if he left before he was able to establish a system that would highlight, promote and allow young black coaches and coaches of color to showcase their their coaching ability. Because far too many times in these black conferences, the MEAC, the SWAT, the SEAC, and the Mm CIAA, they recycle Mm -hmm. these trash coaches who go from Mm -hmm. one school to the next with the same losing record that they had in the previous Mm -hmm. school and go to the next school and lose all over again, right? Mm -hmm. We also Mm -hmm. know that HBCUs historically since the seventies don't really give a damn about athletics like that. That's just what it is. Because if it don't make, and here's the thing, and I and I think I said this, I think I think me and you talked about this individually. Mm-hmm. The celebration bowl, which Coach Prime is coaching in next week, ladies and gentlemen. He made yeah, them it a it promise. It he was like, well, we have unfinished business. I'm gonna yeah. finish out the season at Jackson State and coach these young men to the Celebration Bowl title. But let me put this in perspective for people, because here's what happens at HBCUs. This celebration bowl that they're going to, and I think they're playing against South Carolina State. I want to, mm-hmm. if it's not South Carolina State, whoever wanted me, I, I apologize, but they're playing you all. Mm-hmm. Both teams get, I believe, a million dollars for being in it. The mm-hmm. winning team gets an additional $500,000 for winning. Mm-hmm. Now, you would think, oh, well, the athletics department is getting 1.5 million. No, they're not. That 1.5 million will be dispersed amongst the entire campus, every other program on campus, all the other academic buildings on campus, and then whatever's left, they might give the athletic department some of that. Now, but he doesn't that
1: in- suggest that the athletic department is being pimped out? Absolutely.
0: And he and he touched on that. He touched on that about the games when you know these like. Norfolk State going to play um, North Carolina or Rutgers or one of them big schools, they're getting a million dollar check and getting blown out. But what they don't tell you is out of that million dollar check, the school has to cover the travel expenses for the team, the food for the team, the equipment for the team. They have to cover that out of that million dollar check that the bigger school is cutting them. So I say all that to say football is a business. And we've touched on this as much as we highlight We're the Experience business. As much as we've highlighted the student athlete's mental health and the challenges of being a student athlete, I feel like we've also done a really good job of highlighting just what it means to be a coach and what it takes to be a coach. These are Mm. men who are staking their careers, their life, their paycheck, their protection, their providing for their families on the backs of 18 to 22-year-old boys. Yeah. So, Yes, if a coach has to sit there and sell a dream to make sure he's putting food on his table, then he's going to sell that dream if it means that he's providing this student-athlete the opportunity to better themselves. Now, what that student-athlete does with that opportunity, that's solely on them. But understand this, if you don't capitalize on the opportunity, that coach that sold you that dream, he either going to be, like Coach Prime said, either going to be elevated or terminated. Yeah. That's how it goes. We had Coach Scott at Virginia State. And for those who don't know Coach Scott, I'll, I'll just touch on it for real quick. Coach Scott was a phenomenal FCF coach. He was the youngest black FCS coach in all of FCS when he was hired at the University of Richmond as their head coach. And Mm -hmm. for those who don't know what University of Richmond is, that shit is like 97 percent white, Mm. 97 percent white. That other three percent is every other minority in the world. And out of that, it's a sliver that's black. And this man was the head coach of the football team, was winning. Now, he made a He made a, a, a terrible personal decision that cost him his job. He ended up going to GMU to be the tight ends coach. And he kind of did the same thing that Coach Prime did. Mm -hmm. He came to Virginia State to show people that he can still coach and he can be the leader of young men. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, and I tell people all this, a lot of people don't know this, Coach Scott had his bags packed in 2013 He was ready to go. I want to say it was the University of Rutgers. It was another large school that was ready to offer him a coordinator or head coach position at a large D1 school. If we never had the fight in 2013, Coach Scott would have only been there for one year. Wow. But in that one. And I tell people that I worship the ground. Coach Scott walk on because in those two seasons, he was at Virginia State. He showed us what it was actually like to be a football team, to be a college football team for the first time ever. We -hmm. were rock stars on campus. We were relevant. People actually gave a damn about us. Mm -hmm. I owe that man my last two years of my football career and all the success I had because of him coming to a school and implement. And he pulled a lot of money out of his pockets. Wow. See, a lot of people don't know. A lot of times the HBCUs, this administration, the athletic directors, the president, if they don't get their shine in the progress of the football team or the sports team, they don't allow it to happen. And that's a problem. That ain't Coach Prime's fault. That's our fault.
1: Yeah. And, it's,
0: and it's, a, it's disappointing that now that he's gone, we think now I said this, too. And, and I'm uh, and because and I hope this isn't the case. But like I said, if Coach Prime leave, Jackson State might become irrelevant in two or three years. I hope that isn't true, but I said that because once again, the real issue that he left is because Jackson State didn't do enough to keep him. The community of Jackson didn't do enough to keep him. The alumni of Jackson State didn't do enough to keep him. Why do you think Nick Saban stays at Alabama? It's because there's boosters and donors there that paid off this man' mortgage, a ten million dollar mortgage. Why the hell am I going to leave when y'all going to pay my mortgage? Now I'm not saying that should be that shouldn't be the expectation. But once again, those people at that school know if we want the school to stay thriving, we have to keep sports thriving. That's just how it is. Doesn't matter if it's high school, college, whatever. If the sports team is doing good, the schools are doing good. We had a high school over here in Richmond, Highland Springs High School, won four state championships in a row. Got a brand new school and a brand new football field out of it. So don't sit there and tell me sports don't bring in money and save these schools. They do, but it's on us as black people. It's on us as HBCU alumni to make our HBCUs remain relevant. Now, Mm -hmm. Tennessee State still has Eddie George. Grandma State still has Hugh Jackson. FAMU still has their head coach who was an NFL, former NFL player. So all is not lost. And believe it or not, Dr. Pitts, did you know this? Guess what the most attended HBCU game was last season? And I'll tell you this, Jackson State wasn't even in the top three. FAMU. Nope. They were, they were in the top five for a game. Guess what the number one attended game was? I
1: don't know.
0: Alabama a versus Alabama State. Wow. 68,000 fans. Wow. And they say we have a problem with HBCU football.
1: And that was on Thanksgiving Day, too, Dr. Pitts. 68,000 yeah. fans showed up. Eric is texting me. He said... Coach Prime also had power speech to the University of Colorado staff and football team as well as to what to expect. So he, he I did see part of that um, where he's like, you know, you during that press conference, he said, you know, things haven't been good and you want to win, and I can guarantee you that.
0: Yeah. And so I think, you know, once again, it's a blessing that he was able to come down to Jackson State and do what he did. And I think Jackson State is better for that because of him. But yeah. once again, it is on us as black people, as HBCU alumni, to ensure that we continue to invest in our HBCUs. Over half of our HBCUs are a threat of closure year in and year out because they don't have enough funding. Yeah. So yeah, for everybody who's talking about he's a sellout and he did this and did that, you simply do not understand the business of football and the business of coaching. I truly do not believe it was about the money. The man's worth over 40 million. He don't need that little 5 million that the school's going to give him. He's fine without that. But the opportunities, the investment that they have in the athletics program, that's hard to beat. That's hard to walk away from. When you know you're going to have the support of the school, the community, the state, that's hard to walk away from. So shout out to Coach Prime for what he did to Jackson State. And I hope every HBCU that has a sports program in in, the athletics department understand that we can do this at all HBCUs, if we make a conceded effort to invest in them, and I'm gonna stop ranting and raving because I said I was gonna stop at 11:30, but you know,
1: it's all
0: I'm good. Sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> Shawan left the CIAA too. They were never at HBCU, but they left the CIAA to go to a conference in North Carolina in Bluestone and Bluefield State um, in West Virginia, which is a historically uh, HBCU, but predominantly white now is when, is joining the CIAA. So. Okay. Um, do sister Shawan. What's up, Bluefield State? Welcome home. Um, yeah, that was all the news I had.
1: Okay.
0: I'm gonna stop ranting and raving now. I apologize.
1: So look, folks, so, um, when you think about emotional distress, you know, and I, I think I touched on it last week. And when we talk about emotional regulation and what have you, and I put it in its most elementary form or or definition, it's one's ability to increase their tolerance or their capacity for frustration, right? So when we find ourselves emotionally distressed, what that is, is that it's this elevated state of mental anguish that can take a wide variety of forms. And it can result from a mental health issue, or it can be circumstantial, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about some of those circumstances, relationship difficulties, so mm. what does, and Ronnie, you've talked about it all the time, right? What does it look like when you're playing for a team and you're, you experience discord with your coach, you don't get along with your teammates or, you know, and Ronnie, you can speak to this more than I, but when I, when I reflect upon the interview that coach prime did with 60 minutes and they Mm -hmm. showed the conditions of the athletic facilities at Jackson state, those things, when you're an athlete, when you're an athlete and you have sustained injury and you need to be able to rehab and you're in a pool because you don't have the appropriate equipment to rehabilitate your injury. And and you that's distressing, right? Yeah. It's it's similar to people that are economically distressed, to your point, Ronnie, that can't afford appropriate health care, right? So there's there's so many different things that can cause emotional distress. And you know, so what does it look like? What what are the symptoms that will give you an indication that you're emotionally distressed? You feel overwhelmed, helpless, and hopeless. You feel guilty without a clear cause. You spend a lot of time worrying. You have difficulty thinking or remembering. Sleeping too much or too little. Having changes in appetite. Relying more heavily on mood-altering substances such as cannabis and alcohol. Isolating from people or activities. Experiencing unusual anger and irritability. Experiencing fatigue. Having difficulty keeping up with daily tasks. Experiencing new and unexplained pain. Well, daggone it, Ronnie. Isn't that a lot of the stuff that we see in our in our communities? It, don't day. we see a lot of those symptoms in the, the nuclear home of Black and brown persons? Isn't the emotional distress symptoms, isn't that oftentimes, too oftentimes, what we see in economically depressed areas, in mm. areas where there are food deserts, in on HBCU campuses that have less than desirable facilities, less than, you know, we talked um, a few, it was the end of last season where we were talking about the housing conditions at Howard University and the students were protesting and it was a mess. So when you think about emotional distress, there are so many different ways within within the realm of athletic performance, but also systemically outside of athletic play that our athletes are exposed to emotionally distressing situations day in and day out. Their performance, the long hours that you all have to put in. The Did you get a full scholarship? Didn't you get a full scholarship? Did you blow your refund check? Did you have to send it home to mom and them so that they can eat? The, the conditions that you have to play in and rehab in. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. So it would suggest that for a number of our athletes, Ronnie, at these HBCUs, emotional distress is a way of life, but they're expected to perform at these exponentially high levels every single solitary game, regardless of what sport they're playing. Right. What's wrong with that picture?
0: It is. And and you you made several great points, and I wanted to touch on them. You know, when when we think about, you know, the emotional distress of, you know, just regular, you know, regular citizens, people who aren't in sports and things like that. One of the things I always tell people is that I think one of the detriments that, you know, not all parents, but a good amount of parents fail to do is to really condition and prepare their kids what it means to be an adult on a day in and day out basis. And I've said this before, obviously, getting a good job, you know, having a house, having a reliable car, having a family, those are all, you know, foundational things that we all strive to do, right? But that's not all That's not all it means to be an adult. There are so many things that encompass being an adult, especially the emotional piece of it. Yeah. One of the ways I like to break down the emotions for people to really understand how it works, and I tell this all the time, and I said this on the show numerous times, the goal is to not control your emotions or your thoughts because those are two things that you just cannot do. Mm -hmm. You can reduce the occurrence of negative thoughts. You can reduce the occurrence of expressing negative emotions, but you cannot control your thoughts or feelings. They are indicators. There are things that are there to tell you what's going on inside and outside of you. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I like to get people to really understand what it means to be an adult is to compare your emotions to a stock chart. Let's look at Apple, for example. You know, on If you looked at the day-to-day of a stock, a stock goes up and down throughout the day from 9.30 a.m. to 4.15 p.m., mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. goes up and down. And if you really look at it minute by minute, it's just like this, just up and down, up and down. Wouldn't it be fair to say that us as humans, our emotions are kind of like a stock chart? If you look at it over the course of a day, our emotions are all over the place. Mm -hmm. If you could list off how many emotions on a day in and day out basis that you that you experience, give or take, you might experience maybe 10 different emotions throughout the course of a day. Mm -hmm. Right. Some good, some not so good. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a step back, you look at the year, uh, the year of business. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Day to day has been up and down. But is that up and down on a steady upward trajectory or downward trajectory? Mm -hmm. Meaning. If you look at yourself from a year, if I look at myself compared to December 10th of 2021 compared to now, my emotions have been up and down over the last year. With my emotions leading me to go upwards in life or in a recession in life. A lot Mm -hmm. of times we don't have a full understanding of our emotions and why we're feeling them. It can kind of feel like we're experiencing a recession in our life, meaning that once again, we become hopeless, we become distressed, we become feeling powerless. We feel Mm -hmm. like we have no control whatsoever in our life. Right. Mm -hmm. I think one of the great benefits of children playing sports is that sports kind of give you a, a, a controlled microcosm of life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Within any sport, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, softball, you will come across some type of distress over the course of a game, practice, season, off season. eventually. That will eventually happen. Keep living and keep playing. <laughs> you will find yourself. In some positions in games, you will find yourself asking yourself over the course of a game, like, how the hell did this happen? Like, mm-hmm. you'll wait, you'll start the game is zero zero. You look at the end of the first quarter, it's 28 nothing. You're like, how we get? <laughs> Bruh, we are getting drashed out here. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Same thing in life. You can wake up in the morning and think your whole day is going to be fine. Next thing you know, you're on a side of 95 for three hours with a blown tire and got to do two therapy sessions. You know, Absolutely. life comes at you fast. You know, not that I know anybody who had to go through that or anything, but you know, hey.
1: <laughs> so simple.
0: <laughs> but I say all that to say.
1: Hey, highway therapy, Ronnie.
0: Hey, hey, that's Don't do highway shit.
1: therapy. Yeah, it's I
0: wonder. I wonder if I can get a Medicaid code for that. You know.
1: <laughs> so simple. <laughs> what was the location? I ninety five.
0: Northbound, mo- <laughs> mo- <marker> mobile
1: therapy. I ninety five is the menu
0: <laughs> between mile markers sixty two and seventy eight. You can you can get adequate one on one online therapy today.
1: Signal was great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, though. My say, my now, crazy. My signal
1: wasn't
0: my signal wasn't peckable on the highway. though I will say oh that like, I didn't have no, <laughs> I didn't have not one disturbance on my phone, which is kind of mm. kind of crazy. But um so I say all that to say. I think, you know, as we get older, and, and like I said, you know, I think it is on the parents and also as you become a teenager and young adult to really gain an understanding of your emotions because mm-hmm. we're not sitting here and telling you is that you won't ever be distressed about something.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: if you play sports long enough, you will find – I think one of the most exciting but also stressful moments in the game of football is the final two minutes. Look, that final, so,
1: that final on two a pro minutes, level, that Raiders, Raiders – Game?
0: Crazy
1: and listen,
0: crazy. <laughs> I, I didn't even watch.
1: Break down.
0: I didn't even watch Undisputed yesterday, but I know down. Skip. I know Skip was having a ball. That Baker Mayfield went out there and threw that game-winning touchdown. Oh my pass. goodness! But and it's like those those final two minutes of a game yeah. can feel like in reality it'll take thirty minutes for the final two minutes of a game to go by.
1: Yeah. And
0: I always tell people like being in that moment, being on the field play-to-play in a Mm game-winning drive, it is so much going on that, like, if you don't choose to have tunnel vision during that moment, you can get lost. The moment can be overwhelming at times. You get caught up in
1: the the, noise. And I've heard coaches say, they tell their players, you got to block out the noise. You have to, because it is,
0: especially in a game of football where there's so many moving parts and there's so many variables, it is Mm -hmm. easy to get lost in the sauce and get distracted by other Mm -hmm. things that are going on around you. Mm -hmm. But part of having distress tolerance is being able to understand the moment, understand your objective and do your job Yeah, and not expecting to do more. And I think, and I I want you to touch on this because you will be able to deliver it in a way more clinical and elegant way than I can. But I always tell people, I think as humans, we are naturally and instinctively inclined to try and control as much of us and the environment around us as possible. Mm -hmm. I think when we think about things like anxiety, when we think of things about stress and things Mm -hmm. of that nature, when we feel anxious, when we feel stressed, what is our natural inclination to try and do? Is to try and control the situation. Give you an Mm -hmm. example. If I have an intense fear of going outside, it's agoraphobia, being like, you know, being out in public. Mm -hmm. If I have an intense fear of being out in public, instinctively, the only way I feel like I can control that is by not going outside. Mm -hmm. So I get I get satisfaction within myself because it's like, oh, I can control this. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. in sports, when you find yourself down by four with a minute left, one time out and you have to get a touchdown and Mm -hmm. you feel anxious. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, instinctively, the only way you can control that situation is by going to get a touchdown and winning the game. But we know that doesn't always happen. So if you don't have an understanding of how to manage those emotions in that moment, you -hmm. will succumb to them and you will Mm -hmm. act impulsively and you will probably make a not so good decision that might probably won't end up in you winning the game. And Mm -hmm. I think when you, and to your point earlier also, I think when you have a coaching staff that also has a great understanding of emotions, Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: I think one of the, the great things about somebody like I had, like Coach Scott, was... Coach Scott always told us, he was like, I'm going to make practice as chaotic and, you know, variable as possible. So that way, when we get to the game, this is not your first time experiencing this. Mm -hmm. Every Thursday practice, Thursday was always um, helmet and shoulder pads and it was just shorts and whatever. But every Mm -hmm. Thursday we would do our two minute drill Mm -hmm. and it was live. Like we would do a live two minute drill and he would always have like not, you know, unrealistic scenarios. But like in the midst of it, like the office started driving too fast, it'd be a phantom holding penalty and we come all the way back or mm. it'd be a false start and we have to come all the way back. He would do things on purpose, one, to piss us off because, you know, whoever lost had to do extra conditioning. So, you know, mm. we ain't trying to do extra conditioning as an offense. But one mm. of the things he was trying to get us to understand is even when you think you're in control, you're not in control. One of the crazy things about sports is even when you feel like you're in control, you're never really in control the entirety of the time. You just have seized the opportunity in that moment. And you better make the most of that moment because just like in all sports, when that momentum swings to the other team, you better be ready.
1: Let me jump in right there. Go ahead. So I I truly believe, and I believe this personally and professionally, that emotional distress and and you know, people that tend to be emotionally dysregulated, I believe that part of that is because there's difficulty normalizing the emotional experiences, right? Mm-hmm. We absolutely positively cannot control everything. And I think that people who try to control everything, I really believe and been there, done that, wrote really a book about it. And, and it's something that I work on daily That That tendency, the tendency to be a control freak is a trauma response, right? And here's why, if I can put it in its simplest clinical context, when you, when chaos and disarray and confusion and noise and clamor and all of these distress provoking things occur, oftentimes what's happening is how that noise is interpreted is the interpretation is it's going to equal pain. It's going to equal a negative and adverse and uncomfortable experience. So, when people have the response of trying to control everything, it to the the person on the outside looking in, it suggests that, oh, they're just a control freak. They want everything to be their way. It's not about wanting everything to be your way, it's about not wanting to experience pain, it's about Mm -hmm. not wanting to experience adversity, it's about not wanting to experience discomfort. So, interpretation of the noise is an extremely important element of being able to minimize, if not terminate the distressing experience, right? right? So one of the activities that I do with my clients, Ronnie, is I literally bring up a sheet of emotions and it has demonstrations, probably 50 or more emotions that are on this sheet. And I literally walk through each one of them and I say, is there anything on this sheet that you've never, ever, ever experienced ever in your entire life? in all the years I've been doing this work, Ronnie, I've only had one client say that there was something that they had never experienced, right? Every other client that I've ever done that activity with has acknowledged that every one of those emotional experiences they've had. So Mm -hmm. if you know, to your point a few moments ago, if you know that as long as you continue to play sports, as long as you continue to live this thing that we call life, it is expected that you're going to experience at some point in time, every emotion that there is to experience, even the really bad ones, even the really tragic ones, even the really intense ones that are, that could provoke you to emotional distress. Now, people have said, you know, you know, Lauren or Dr. Pitts or whatever, you, you just seem to let water, you know, roll off your back. Like, let me tell you something. And I've said before on this show, I haven't always done a good job of being emotionally regulated, but being emotionally distressed and and allowing that experience to happen was detrimental to me. And it there were so many consequences that were associated with my inability to regulate my emotions that when I did the cost-benefit analysis, I very quickly came to realize that if I don't learn how to regulate my emotions, regardless of what the circumstances are. And I can tell you folks, I have been in some really, really, really horrific situations. I can honestly tell you that the, the last time that I was the most emotionally distressed and I was inconsolable was when my first husband passed away. I was inconsolable at his funeral. I, I just, I could not get myself together, but I also recognized Knowing myself as well as I do, because the nature of his death was so tragic and how his death was handled was so egregious that had I been given the time to grieve his loss differently, or had I been given the opportunity to better prepare for what I saw him laying in the casket, looking the way that he did, knowing me as well as I do, I would have been more effective in my ability to handle my emotions. But I was, I was caught off guard because it, it, and I'm going to say this, and I say this respectfully um, in honor of his memory. At that point in time, I wasn't, we weren't together. I wasn't, in charge of his services, I would have had a closed casket. I would have had a closed casket because my first husband was gorgeous. He was fine as all outdoors. And that's not what you saw. The shock of that, I came completely unglued. But with the help of family and friends and my best friend who was glued to my left hip, I was able to recompose myself. So I want you to hear my heart folks when I say that we understand that there are times when, whether it's in athletic play or beyond athletic play, that things can happen to you in such a way that knock you for such a loop that you lose it, that you absolutely positively lose it. But you also have the ability to compose yourself and to not stay in that emotionally d- distressed state. Um, you know, there are definitely some some things that you can do that can be instrumental. Um, first and foremost, there there's some prevention that you can take, right? Mm-hmm. And the prevention is being aware of those triggers in the athletic setting, um, at home, on campus, whatever the case may be. Ronnie, you touched on it. that support network is paramount, whether it's your um, your teammates, your coaches, your trainers, your parents, your whomever the case may be. Um, staying engaged in your play, mm-hmm. you know, not allowing yourself to become so withdrawn that you just sort of collapse under the pressure of whatever it is that's transpired. And one of the things that I've always admired as you hear, I don't, I'm not familiar with situations in the collegiate realm, but certainly in the professional arena where athletes have been notified that a parent has died or that a sibling has died and they come out and play anyway. And they do it in their mind. Part of how they handle the emotional distress that they're experiencing is they, um, they honor, it's how they pay homage to the person that they Mm -hmm. lost is like, you know, I'm going to come out, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to rock out and I'm going to have my best game ever in, in memory and, and honoring them. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta eat right. And you all know that, you know, as, as athletes and the substances, you got to keep the substances out of the formula because they can be so, so harmful and, and stress management techniques. Um, there's one in particular Ronnie that I want to, rem- to to touch on um and it's called radical acceptance and and I love that one so much because it it speaks to our power mm-hmm. it speaks to what you said in the beginning of the show where we 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 created that marriage between the systemic element and the individual element radical acceptance folks is recognizing that in that example that I gave where I literally just lost it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's those occasions where you run into a problem where you are absolutely positively out of control. Mm -hmm. You are out of control. It's the tragic phone call saying that you lost a child, you lost a sibling, you lost a spouse. It's the distress with the shooting at UVA. You know what I'm saying? It's like, these horrific, horrific circumstances that you absolutely positively have no control over and it isn't fair and it, it's, it's horrific. Radical acceptance refers to a healthier way of thinking during these situations. And instead of focusing on how you would like something to be different, you recognize and accept the problem or situation as it is. Accepting is not the same thing as liking or, or condoning something. It's about learning to accept the problems that arise because you, you you just don't have control. Nothing you say or do, nothing that you say or do is going to make it different, is going to make it better. It's going to bring the person back. And that that, that radical acceptance is, I can, I can hear it, Ronnie, like it was yesterday my best friend in my ear at that funeral. And that's what she was ministering to me. And it was like a a healing salve Mm -hmm. that even though every fiber of my existence was shattered in that moment in time, because I didn't want it to end that way. There was something in that moment, and since that time, good good experiences, good memories, mistakes, all of it, Ronnie. The radical acceptance was instrumental in self-soothing my senses, my eyes, my ears, the touch, the taste, the smell of it all.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Pizz. And if I could add any um, anything else to this topic, um, it's like some of the things that you can know that players and coaches can do um, to work with distress tolerance. Um, I think from a coaching standpoint, I think, you know, a you know, as coaches, you should be able to, you know, be able to lead your you know, young men in a way where they trust your word and they trust your they buy into your program. I think, you know, a lot of times when coaches don't have buy-in from the team or they don't have trust from the, you know, from the players, it's kind of hard to establish any type of culture or any type of foundations or principles. So, you know, once you have that level of respect, you know, amongst the players and coaches, I think, you know, when it talks about the stress tolerance, and and we mentioned this throughout the show, you know, sports is nothing but stress at times. Sports can be the entire 60 minutes of a game can be nothing but stress. But how you manage yourself, amongst the chaoticness of the event of a game of the events of quarters of of halves and things like that. I think, you know, as coaches, I think the best thing to do is to prepare for that during the week. I think uh, what makes a great coaching staff is being able to have individuals uh, along that, among that coaching staff that can identify and pinpoint, you know, situations, scenarios, problems that could arise, whether they do or not, being able to, uh, one of the things I always work with people in anxiety about is what is the worst case scenario that can happen that's associated with your anxiety about something, someone or, or whatever the case may be? Because once you're able to identify what the worst case scenario is, we can formulate a plan. We can formulate a process of steps to help you prepare for that. If and when that situation were to happen, if the worst case scenario were to happen, if worst case scenario doesn't happen. Cool. That's great. That's amazing. Because not all the time, this worst case scenario always happen. But if it does the goal is to not be caught off guard. The goal is to have a plan. I always say even, you know, even when it comes to like, you know, the Second Amendment and weapons and stuff like that. One of the things my dad always told me is rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Same thing with same thing in amongst in sports. It's better to go over it, coach it, prepare for it, have a plan for it, as opposed to it coming, you know, coming about in the midst of a game. And everybody's looking around like, well, what the hell do we do? Yeah. So if you don't prepare, if you don't prepare, I, I always screw the quote up. If you fail to prepare, you're preparing to fail. Yeah. So I think that one of the best things to handle distress, you know, is to be able to prepare for the worst case scenario. And if it happens, you have a plan and you just get through it and do your best. And if it doesn't happen, kudos to that as well. And that's all I have for uh, this week's topic. Um, just, Dr. Fish, you want to uh, finish Yeah, up? just one,
1: one more to piggyback on that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's There's a a wealth of distress tolerance um, uh, approaches that you can take. There is, um, there's one that uh, is an acronym. It's called ACCEPTS, Activities Contributing Comparisons, Emotions, Pushing Away Thoughts and Sensations. Um, There's one that's based on another acronym called PLEASE, Treating Physical Illness, Eating Healthy, Avoiding Mood-Altering Drugs, Sleeping Well, and and Getting the Exercise. But the one that I want to close out on, Ronnie, is connected to our thought life. Because I think that whether it's within the context of your athletic play and performance or just in your day-to-day life when it's off season, um, I think that people make light of the power of our thought life. And I am so big, Ronnie, I am so big on requesting that people be mindful of their Mm self-talk. What are you telling yourself? What are you telling yourself about the last game? What are you telling yourself about the upcoming game? What are you telling yourself about your relationship with your coach? What are you telling yourself about your relationship with your teammates, right? Because that negative self-talk, what a lot of people do not realize is what you tell yourself informs your relationship with yourself. It's the Bible says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks, right? Looking at that in the natural sense, the conversations that you have going on in your head are informing how you relate to yourself and other people. It's informing how you play. It's informing how you show up on the court, the field, the baseball diamond, the poor, whatever the case may be. You have to start paying attention to your internal dialogue so that you're more aware that what you feed grows. So if you're entertaining all of this negative chatter Based on the conversation you're having with yourself, you have the ability to elevate your emotional distress or diminish your emotional distress. So that's what I want to close with. I want folks to pay attention to their internal dialogue because it is informing how you manage your emotions. Um, That's all we have today, folks. We have next week is our last show until the January 7th show, you know, we take that that break before Christmas and after Christmas off. Um what, 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 what a year it has been. But we'll talk more about that. Ronnie always recaps the first half of the season um, on that last show before we break for Christmas. Ronnie, man, you better know that I love you because let me tell you something. I got a husband as an Eagles fan. The father of my child is an Eagles fan. I got an ex that was an Eagles fan. I got an ex that was a Redskins fan, and my former husband was, God bless his soul, a Dallas Cowboys fan. And ain't nobody ever been able to get me in no Eagles nothing. Hey, that's how know, much I love you. And that's I, like- how I am on honoring my word. I said if I had lose did 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 did. This here HBCU pick camaraderie thing, did you trick me and put on the table that I would wear the Eagles' gear? I was a good sport. I had wore it. And now I am claiming, in the name of Jesus, that it is what was needed to throw the Malakia Malakia on them. <laughs> So that when they come to Dallas on Christmas so Christmas
0: So in other words, I what, I
1: you,
0: what I hear you saying is, is that you are intentionally trying to cause distress amongst, yes, amongst absolutely. the
1: Absolutely. And no Eagles fans out there. Go ahead and take all the screenshots you need to take. Go ahead and make all the jabs because know that you won't see it no more. You want I'll be a reneging. Somebody. I, but you ain't had to worry about me for your nigga, because I will never again say, "Oh Ronnie" or anybody else. If I lose, I'm gonna wear it. I ain't doing it. It ain't happening. We love y'all. We're so glad you tuned in today. Have a wonderful weekend. Get that Christmas shopping done. Do I need to email y'all what my sizes and stuff are? You can always go right with Cowboys stuff. Just send me Cowboys stuff. It's all good. I'm easy. I'm we'll
0: easy, make sure, easy. We'll make sure we'll make sure Goodwill
1: gets it. I'm an easy gift recipient.
0: We'll make sure the Salvation Army gets it, and sends it to the people overseas that really need those don't need those things. All I'm right, pretty folks. sure I'm pretty sure they get all the Cowboys Super Bowl stuff every year that Jerry Jones prints off.
1: Whatever, Ronnie Ransom Jr. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in to House Talk Pregame. We'll see you right back here next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye bye. God bless.